You know, life is uh, hard. Life is hard, especially when you're caring for other people, which, of course, is what mothers do, right? Uh, you, you kind of uh, give everything you can, and then before you know it, there's a mess. It's true on a daily basis in the house. It's true sometimes uh, over the long haul. Suddenly a mess can come in and undo so much of what's been done. There's the uh, sleepless phase, you know, where you're up all night. And then once they sleep through, then you have the interrupted night phase. Bad dreams or or sickness and you're up again. And then the teenage years come and and, uh, teenagers, I've never raised one but I've been one, teenagers have this brilliant logic that says, Mum, just go to sleep. Don't worry about me. And so teenagers are out who knows where, with who knows who, doing who knows what, and expecting their mothers to sleep. While that goes on, it just doesn't happen, does it? And then it doesn't change when they leave home either. They go off and join uh, the army or go to college or join Greenpeace or whatever they decide to do. And they're off somewhere. And I suspect that mothers know what it is to be awake at home, praying for the children that they've raised, the ones that they care about so much, the ones that they can't protect. They're just hoping that they will follow through, continue to follow the truth that they've been taught. It's tough being a mother. It's hard work. And I want to honor the mothers for that work. It's hard work because you care. And Paul, in one of his letters, he uses the language of mother and father, the language of parenting, to talk about ministry. He he talks about how, uh, in his own experience, he has been like a mother and and like a father to a a church of believers. He'd served them, he'd given everything, he'd taught them, he'd tried to help them, he'd done everything that he could for them. And yet things could so easily get so messy. People could turn on him. People could spread false rumours about him. There could be all sorts of things uh, going on behind the scenes. And often in Paul's case, he would find himself somewhere else. Awake, praying for the people that he cared about so much. Life is hard when you care about other people. And as we read through Galatians... I don't think any of us could argue or disagree that Paul cared about the Galatians. In fact, he cared so much that it shows all the way through. He's so concerned for these believers. Speaking of reading through Galatians, when we started the series uh, a few weeks ago, I I made the suggestion, I suppose I put it as an invitation, to read through the book of Galatians. You read it through in one sitting. I, I think I said something like, how about three times a week? Uh, how's that going? Are you enjoying Galatians? I've spoken to uh, one or two that have been reading it and, and have appreciated hearing their reflections. And I'll just tell you from my perspective, as I'm spending a lot of time in this book, it is really, really challenging me. It, it is really uh, kind of rocking me. It's challenging me. And yet at the same time, I can honestly say, I can't remember the last time I was this encouraged. Challenging and encouraging. I want to make just one more uh, suggestion or or invitation to you. Of course, the the other one still stands. If you haven't dived into Galatians yet, there's still a couple of weeks in the series. Uh, Let me invite you to come on in. The water is uh, just the right temperature. Uh, Have a read through and and see. Allow it to to, to mark and shape you. But that brings me on to my other application, if you like. In fact, my last application for us for the entire message. Okay, I'll explain that in a second. I'm sure we'd all agree, we we want to be a congregation of people that are shaped by God's Word. Right? We we want to be shaped by it. 
Which means that, of course, we have to be exposed to it, and then we have to be willing for it to shape us, to change us. I suppose I could put it this way, uh, let's be good Bereans. What's that? Well, in Acts 17, Paul was traveling, uh, and he came to Thessalonica. That's the place where he talked about being like a father and a mother to them when he wrote to them. Uh, And he was chased out of Thessalonica by some religious uh, zealots, and and he came on to Berea, and then the writer of Acts tells us that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Two things. One, they received Paul's message with eagerness. They leaned forward to receive it. And two, they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was teaching them was true. As I encourage us to to be reading Galatians, let me expand that encouragement and say, let's be Bereans. That is, let's receive the message of Galatians. As we read it, let's receive it eagerly, but then let's check. Let's be Bible people, reading the Bible to check to see if what Paul's teaching in Galatians is true or not. You could do the whole Bible, it it all works together. You might just want to dive in at the New Testament. If you're not in a read-through at the moment, I'd encourage you, just dive in. and uh, It could be an interesting uh, read for a few weeks as you go through the New Testament and and kind of ask yourself, okay, do these books support what Galatians teaches? Now, just to encourage you, I don't think you're going to be searching for an obscure verse in an obscure corner. Just as I've been pondering that question this week, it seems to me that the message of Galatians is reinforced in significant ways in Matthew, in uh, John, Acts, Romans, of course, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, there's Philippians, there's Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, and Hebrews in a massive way. And there's probably more that I haven't been thinking about. But, But do read the New Testament and say to yourself, okay, is Paul right in what he says in Galatians? And see if it's consistent with the rest of what the Bible teaches. Now, as I said, that's the last application. That's the last thing that I'm going to say to us. What I want us to do for the rest of this morning, really, is leave Chippenham behind. Okay, I know it's sunny and it's nice, but let's just leave Chippenham, even leave Ladyfield behind. Let's go back, and if you like, uh, sit with Paul. Okay, let's, let's try and see from his perspective, how his care for the Galatians shows through in the 15 verses we're going to look at. I suppose we could sit with him. I suspect he was probably pacing. Okay, I don't think I'm the first person to pace. I think Paul was pacing. Uh, So let's pace with Paul as he is uh, speaking to the Galatians, and hopefully in the process uh, that will be helpful to us as well. Now, the the issue in Galatia, just in a nutshell, was that after Paul had been there and planted the church, some other teachers came in and they tried to impose a sort of a legalistic version of Christianity on the people. And maybe you heard, in the, as Alan was doing the reading, from chapter 2, verses 15 to 21, which is really the main thought of the entire letter, What Paul was saying there for several verses was justified, 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 four times. Talking about how we get justified, how things get straightened out so that we can come into relationship with God. And he's saying it's not by law, it's by faith. And then his language shifts. Uh, Maybe you spotted the repetition. Six times he says, live, live, life, live, live, live. And so the the thrust of the book is that he's he's arguing really with these people who are saying, you need to get born again properly. That is, you need to be circumcised. 
to really be the people of God. And then you need to follow this code, because with this external code, then you can really live righteous lives. And Paul is resisting that with every fibre of his being. Okay, so what we're going to find as we come to chapter 5 is, first of all, I'll just give a bit of a road map so that you can kind of follow through. The first six verses, he summarises what he's been saying. Starting in the reading we had in chapter 2, coming right the way through to verse 6 of chapter 5, he's summarising this, what we call the body of the letter, the main message of the letter, the, the theological core. Okay, he's going to summarise that, which uh, I think could be helpful, because it's not automatically easy to catch or follow as you read the book. And then, verses 7 to 12, he's going to shift. He's going to shift from uh, a summary of of his teaching, and he's going to shift the focus back onto the Galatians. Okay, because for two, three chapters, he's been working his way through this uh, presentation, And then he's going to shift back to them, which is what he was talking about back in chapter 1. So he's going to go back to them for the purpose of getting to verse 13. And from verse 13 to 15, we get to the so what. The so what. What what does this look like? What does all this teaching look like in a community of God's people? And that's not just three verses. That will go right the way through the rest of our series, chapter 5 and chapter 6. And we're going to take uh, a couple more weeks because it's so important that we really trace through so what does all this teaching mean for us? So that's the roadmap. He's going to summarize, then he's going to shift back to them so that he can offer them the so what of the message of Galatians. Just a sneak preview, uh, lest you uh, leave, you know, if there's an earthquake halfway through or something, I I wouldn't want you to miss this. What he's going to say in a nutshell in these 15 verses is this. In Christ, we are free from the law. We are not under the law, but that does not mean we're free to sin. Of course not. We're free to serve. We are freed from the burden of the law so that we can serve others. Not so we can sin for our own sakes. And we'll see that as we go through it. Let's look at, uh, at uh, the first few verses here. I think it's page 823 in a blue Bible. And so this is the summary. I, I wonder if, uh, as Ron was preaching through, I, I'll be honest, I'm kind of glad Ron had the last two weeks in some ways, because that, that's tough stuff, just trying to follow Paul's thought through chapters 3 and 4. And I think he did a masterful job with that. Let me encourage you, if you found that hard, get the CDs, listen to it again, press pause, open your Bible and check. And and see if you can follow it through, because Paul's uh, presentation is is stunning in those chapters. And I wonder if, as he was going through chapter 4 last week, did your eyes slip down to verse 1 of chapter 5? Because this would have been a stunning summary, but Ron really wanted to be careful not to steal from me, so he left it. Uh, bless him. So, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Paul says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That's a climactic statement. It's for freedom. He, he begins, Paul begins, Freedom! The great cry. That's why Christ has set us free. So stand firm because it's going to be threatened. People are going to come and try and swamp it and swallow it and and throttle it and squeeze it and and get rid of the freedom that is yours in Christ and Paul wants them to resist that. What, What was it that they were saying? Well, several things. The false teachers were saying, first of all, Paul's not a real apostle. 
Alright, we, we saw that earlier on. Secondly, they're saying Paul doesn't give you a complete message. And essentially, if you want to boil that down, Paul is soft on sin. That's what the false teachers were saying. Now, is Paul soft on sin? That's a key, key question. The whole book of Galatians is not a debate about whether we should sin or not. Of course we shouldn't sin. But it's a debate about whether God has provided a solution for sin that is better than the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant, for all of its value, was never intended to be a solution for sin. I suppose Paul might have put it this way, am I soft on sin compared to to these legalists? No, I take sin more seriously than they do. Might not look it, when you look at them, they're so serious, but, but actually, I take sin way more seriously because I recognize that sin isn't just about behavior. Sin isn't just about uh, avoid this and avoid this and you'll be a good person. Paul says, no, no, no. Sin goes way deeper than behavior. We know that, don't we? We know that sin is not just about do this, don't do this, don't do that, do that instead. We don't. We know implicitly in our own experience that sin doesn't just come from the outside. Sin comes from within, doesn't it? The Bible teaches us that, that we have a, uh, a heart problem, a heart disease. That sin comes from, from deep within. And if we're going to solve the sin problem, well then we've got to deal with the heart problem. And any solution that doesn't address the heart doesn't deal with sin. Now what did the old covenant do? It was like guardrails. It showed you when you were going off the road. You know, driving along and, and there's a guardrail so that you don't drive over a cliff. That would be a disaster. You don't want to do that. The, the guardrail stops that. Does it make you a good driver? Of course not. The sin, sorry, the law is like a mirror. And, and a mirror shows you when something isn't right. But the mirror doesn't fix it, does it? You don't take the mirror off the wall and start scrubbing your face with a mirror. The mirror is a good thing, but the mirror doesn't solve the problem. The mirror, the, the, the guardrails, the law is there for a purpose, but it's only a temporary purpose. That's what Paul's been arguing. It's there for a season of time. It wasn't always there, and it is not there now, but it is there to lead people to Christ. It's, the, it's that uh, keeping people captive, keeping them prisoner until Christ, chapter 3. It's a, a tutor. To raise the children until they come to the fullness, chapter 4. The law serves a purpose, but the law doesn't solve the problem because the law cannot create righteousness in anybody. And so what Paul's saying in these, uh, in these chapters, what he has been saying in, in quite a complicated way for a couple of chapters, is the law isn't a solution, and bringing the law in isn't going to fix things. It isn't going to make you righteous. It isn't going to help you to, to be a good person. God's done that in Christ. That's the gospel that does that, not the law. Don't, don't go back to the law. You go back to the law, you're turning your back on Christ, turning your back on the gospel. Let's read how he, he puts it. He's so strong in these verses. Uh, verses 2, 3, and 4. He's really trying to get the Galatians to, to wake up to, to what, how important this is. Verse 2. Mark my words. I, Paul, is really hammering this. Tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, as the entry point into this righteous living thing, righteous lifestyle, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I, dis- I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. 
Did you know that the Bible never splits the law up into different categories? People do that. If you read carefully what they write, they don't agree with each other about which category to put which law in sometimes. But the Bible itself never splits it up into different types of this, this, this bit doesn't apply, this bit does apply. The Bible doesn't do that. If you put yourself under a bit of it, then you've got to put yourself under all of it. And that's a heavy, heavy yoke. That's what Paul says here. That's what Peter says at the Jerusalem Council. That's what James says. Now, you can't take a bit and say, this bit will help me, that bit won't. No, no, no. If you're going to take a bit, take the whole thing and feel the weight of it. In verse 4, he says, You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, I don't think here Paul is trying to create a whole discussion about whether we can lose our salvation or not. I think what he's trying to do is wake him up. Come on, Galatians, wake up. You cannot have law in a gospel time. You cannot take the, the, the glory of the gospel and then kind of try to live by the law. It just doesn't work. It, you turn your back on this to go for that. Stick with what God has given you in Christ. In fact, he makes it positive in the next two verses. Instead of critiquing that, he, he says, what have we got in Christ? What is this glorious gospel? And here we have a summary of the themes that we've seen in chapters 3 and 4. Look at it, verse 5. But, by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither uh, circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You see the themes there? By faith. It's by faith, not by works. It's by faith that we can uh, move towards righteousness, uh, that we can be given God's righteousness, and then we can live in God's righteousness. Uh, we can wait for his righteousness, as he puts it here. It's by faith. Isn't that what the Bible says elsewhere? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11, Romans 14. Anything that is not of faith is sin. Anything, even obeying the law, if it is not by faith, even that obedience is sin. Uh, Paul says, we eagerly await. Is that a one-time entry point or is that an ongoing? It's an ongoing, isn't it? We continue, we eagerly await the righteousness that we hope for. How? Through the Spirit. And we're in Christ. What has he said in chapters 3 and 4 in a nutshell? It's by faith, not by law. That's what the reading said, right? So we get saved by faith, we carry on by faith. Faith in who? The promised one. That is Christ. The one who was promised even before the law was given. And by uh, Christ, the spirit of Christ brings us into union with Christ so that in this relationship with Christ, we can call God, his father, what do we call him? Abba, chapter 4. Our daddy. That intimacy, that closeness. You see, Paul has been uh, hammering these themes through these two chapters. Faith and, and the promised one and the spirit and the intimacy with God. And he's telling them that you just can't turn your back on that and expect to be adding something to the gospel. You're not. You're, you're losing it. You're, you're giving up on it. Let me offer it to you in, in one more way before we move past this, this center section of the book. Those themes that Paul has been writing in, in uh, 3 and 4, they, they seem very close to me to the idea of the new covenant which is his emphasis in 2 Corinthians, where he has a similar kind of discussion. 
What's the new covenant? I mean, this is technical stuff, but quite simple, really. Go back into the Old Testament and wade your way through the prophets. And places like uh, Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 and Isaiah, in, the, in that time when the nation was under the law, was it producing righteousness? No. It was showing them how desperately sinful they were. But they're under the law and the, the, the trend is downwards, things are bad, under the, the, the uh, imprisonment of the law. And there, what does God say? I will make a new covenant. It's promise. I will make a new covenant future. And what does the new covenant entail? I suppose this is the real question. Does the new covenant do a better job than the old covenant of answering the sin question? Because you see that the old covenant was never intended to answer the sin question. It was intended to shine a light on the sin problem. So that you look for the new covenant solution. So does the new covenant answer the sin problem? Does it give us an answer to the sin question? That is, is it more than just behaviors? Does it get down into our hearts? Guess what the new covenant said? God said, I will make a new covenant. Firstly, I will forgive their sins. Boy, we take that for granted, don't we? When we live in in our age, we talk about it all the time. Sins forgiven. Wow. Now, of course, if that's all it said, then... That would be a bit risky, but that's not what what it says, not just that. It goes on, I will replace their hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Now that could solve a sin problem, right? Giving people, instead of a heart of stone, a a heart that, that is alive to God. In fact, he says another thing about the heart. The law won't be written on stone externally, it'll be written on the heart. That is, there will be a desire from within to do what is right. Oh, and God says, I'll give them my spirit. Oh, and more than that, I will bring them into a a, a relationship with God where they will know the Lord. That's new covenant. Sins forgiven, hearts enlivened, uh, inner desire to do good and to do right, a spirit of God dwelling in us and an intimate relationship so that we know the Lord. And Paul is saying in this middle section of Galatians, the, the main message of the book is that if you try to, to turn from the gospel, from the new covenant, and add the old covenant back in, you are turning from the new covenant. Any move towards the law, any move back towards a, a sort of external code of righteousness by which you can do what's right, if you move to that... I think what Paul's saying is this, you either do not understand, or Galatians, you do not trust the new covenant. Any move towards the old covenant means that the Galatians either do not understand, or they do not really believe the new covenant. Strong stuff, isn't it? And so having established that over several chapters, really trying to get them to lift their eyes to Christ, he adds something here, something we haven't seen before. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a word in verse 6 that hasn't been used in the book yet. And it's the word love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now there is a very closely related word back in chapter 2, at the beginning of the body of the the letter. Here's the conclusion, almost like two brackets that hold this whole section together. What does he say back in chapter 2? I live this life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if I live by faith, focusing on him, rather than focusing on the law, that is, focusing on my own righteousness, if I keep my gaze on him, living by faith, what does that look like? What does that generate in my life? Verse 6 of chapter 5. Faith. 
Expressed how? Well, through love. If I'm gripped by him, that love will flow out from me. Have you noticed that you cannot legislate for love? The government of our country, as far as I know, the government of any country has never put a law in that says you must love. You can't legislate love. Love is always a response. And our love is always a response. What does the Bible say? We love God. Why? Because he first loved us. And so Paul says, in light of what Christ has done, giving himself for us, he loved us. So we trust him. And as we trust him, we're transformed. New covenant from the inside out. And as we're transformed, how does that manifest itself? How does that express itself? It expresses itself through love. Something the law could never achieve. And so now he shifts back onto the Galatians. You see, now he wants to get back to them so he can say to them essentially, so what? So what difference does this make in your lives, Galatians? Verse 7 and 8. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying or following the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. You see, he's shifted back to them now. And he said, oh, come on, brothers and sisters in Galatia, you were running so well, you were, you were following Christ, and something has cut in on you. They, they, they've tripped you, and you're running smoothly, and suddenly you've kind of stumbled, and your gaze has gone in a different direction, and instead of looking to Christ, now you're looking to the law, that is, you're looking at yourselves. Where does that come from, that nudge to look at yourself? Paul says it does not come from God. Implication, where do you think it comes from? If it's not coming from God, what's the other source? Wow. Turn from the one who called you. That's what he said in chapter 1. He says in verse 9, uh, quoting here a, a proverb, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Good, that's nice and clear. Moving on. Um, <laughs> I think actually it's fairly obvious what he's meaning here. What he's saying is this. He says, I, I know human nature. I know those Galatians. They responded to the gospel, and then these other teachers came in, and they've responded to these other teachers. Now my letter's going to arrive, and they're going to respond to my letter. What's the solution? Balance. They're going to try to balance it. Bit of this, bit of that. Get some balance. Balance is always a good thing, isn't it? No, it's not. Balance can be exactly the wrong thing to go for when you're trying to balance truth with error. A little yeast goes through the whole batch. A little bit of false teaching does damage to everything. That's why we've got to be so careful, of course, about the word. Anyway, talking to the Galatians, what he says here is, you know, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. He used the same phrase in 1 Corinthians, there in reference to gross immorality. He says, you can't tolerate this person that's living in gross immorality. That's absolutely wrong. A little yeast works through the whole dough. And so what he says there, in reference to sin, he says here, in reference to false teaching, you don't balance good Bible handling with bad Bible handling. He wants the Galatians to see that. And then verse 10, this one has really been encouraging me this week. Verse 10, he says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's miles away, and there they are with these false teachers present, with all the manipulation and all the persuasion. And, and, and Paul, is he panicking? No, ultimately he practices what he preaches. He says, my confidence is in the Lord. He's the one that's going to change hearts. 
He can soften hearts. He can bring people around. He can lead the hardest person to repentance. Paul knew that. He'd done it himself. Right? He'd done it to him. Paul, Paul knew that it's only God that can change a hardness and bring people to a responsiveness to his word. And Paul says, I'm confident in the Lord that he's going to bring you to this. However, the second half of the verse, the one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. There are consequences for those who continue to push this false uh, teaching of new covenant plus old. In fact, verse 11 gives us an insight into some of the things they were saying. Verse 11, brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. What? I wonder if, as you've been reading through Galatians, you kind of went, huh? At that verse. I think what it means is this. Paul has heard that uh, the teachers that have come into the churches in Galatia are saying, not only is Paul not a real apostle, not only is his message incomplete, not only is he imbalanced, not only is he soft on sin, he's also inconsistent. Because at other places he preaches circumcision, you know. And they're going, really? We didn't know that. Is Paul saying, I preach circumcision? Absolutely not, he doesn't. That would make him a a, a hypocrite, an inconsistent at every level. I think what's happening here is he's saying, if I were doing that, then why are they persecuting me? They're being irrational in their attack. They're having to go at me for this, and they're having to go at me for that, and it's one or the other, which is it? And Paul Paul doesn't teach circumcision, but I wonder where they got the idea from. Maybe... uh, misunderstanding of what happened in Jerusalem with Titus that we read about earlier in chapter 1 and 2 uh, started 2 wasn't it maybe it was uh, the way Paul lived in other places we read about that for example in Corinthians where, where he says I became all things to all men that by all means I might save some that, that is the, the principle of Paul the evangelist I'll do whatever it takes short of sinning in order to reach people with the gospel I'm so gripped by it And so he says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. But then he clarifies, though I myself am not under the law. To those who are not under the law, I became as one not under the law. Does that mean he just became a sinner? No. He didn't just go wild and sin. He says, I am under the law of Christ. I obey Christ. I'm obedient to him. And so I love that double clarification. I'm not saying that I'm under the law. I'm not. And I'm not saying I'm lawless. I'm not. I'm representing Christ and I'm obedient to him in order to reach them. And that's, I think, what what the truth was. Paul didn't preach circumcision. Paul preached Christ and him crucified. I wonder if Paul wanted the Galatians to to get that and and to, to evaluate. Listen to one of my messages, Paul said, and listen to one of theirs. Do you find in my message there's a whole lot of Christ and his grace and his goodness and his love and And do you find in theirs that Christ is almost non-existent? Just like a tirade of morality and duty with almost nothing of God. Well, see where that's coming from, guys. That's what he's saying. Now, I'm not even going to make a comment on verse 12. This is about as harsh as Paul gets in all of his writings. But lest we're still wondering if he thinks the Galatians should sort of compromise and, uh, and be a little bit open to what the other people were saying, he says, as for those agitators... I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Wow. So now he gets to the application. Verses 13 to 15. So what? So what does this look like? 
What does it look like for a community of God's people to be so gripped by the gospel that it shows in their lives? What does it look like? Look at verse 13. Um, You, my brothers, he says, were called to be free. Restating that again. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Let's get that out of the way. This nonsense about Paul being soft on sin. Of course he's not. Don't use your freedom from the law to indulge the sinful nature. Notice there's a little number there. It doesn't show on here, but on on your Bible's little letter. And then at the bottom of the page it says, or the flesh. What that means is that what Paul actually wrote was the flesh, but the NIV translators thought it would be helpful to use the phrase sinful nature. I'd rather hear Paul, okay? So I'm just going to say the flesh. It's in there, it's at the bottom, we'll use that. He's saying, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. He's going to say, use this term several times. Rather, he says, serve one another in love. Paul was always the evangelist, wasn't he? You, you kind of think about Paul traveling and going from place to place, and, and here he is anxious, I think, to get back to the Galatian churches, and of course he does. In, in Acts 16, he heads right back to follow up on these places. I think Paul was always concerned, not just for the believers, but for the impact of their witness on their community. And so he's saying that what this looks like, it, it doesn't look like wild sin. Of course not. Nonsense. Why would you even think such a thing? Is that, is that saying something about you, Galatians, that you'd even go? Anyway, no. Paul says, no, no, no. Don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. But rather, serve one another in love. What would it look like to a community to see a church so transformed by the gospel, so gripped by, by what Christ has done as he gave himself for us, that, that the spirit indwelling and the uh, intimate relationship with our God, who is Abba, the Father to us, uh, what would it look like manifested in their lives? Surely it would look like a community so bonded together in love that the whole community around would go, I don't know what's going on there, but it's special. A legalistic approach to Christianity will never have that impact on a community. People watching will see self-righteous. They'll see pompous. They'll see aggressive. They'll see negative. They'll see critical. They'll see judgmental. But what they won't see is love because the law never generates love. God does. And as we are drawn to him, the, the, the freedom that is ours in Christ is a freedom not for our own sakes, it's a freedom for others to serve one another. Paul wants them to be that kind of community. Verse 14, he says, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same thing he says in Romans 13. If you look at it in its context and read it carefully, you know what it says? He says, I could list... I could list the laws, but I don't even need to do that because love fulfills the law. And it's only because of Christ on the cross and the Spirit and the relationship. It's only by God's work that we can know that. But if we know that, we don't need to stress about the law. It doesn't mean we'll be lawless. Heaven forbid. It means we'll fulfill it without even focusing on it because we love one another. But there's a contrast, and Paul gives us that as we finish up in verse 15. I wonder, just before we read that, I wonder if Paul knew that there was tensions in the church or churches of Galatia. I suppose the obvious tension would be between people that agreed with Paul 
and people that wanted to cling on to legalistic righteousness. And and that could create tension. Uh, I suspect that that could well have been the case. I wonder if Paul, even without knowing that, had just done a few sums in his head and thought it through. What does that theology result in? If the the community of believers in the Galatian churches were were, were being dragged into this legalistic, law-centered kind of self-focused spirituality, what would that look like? Because it wouldn't result in love. I suspect Paul would have known, even if he hadn't heard, that it would look like verse 15. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. A community of God's people so gripped by their own righteousness will bite and devour. It will be a community marked by uh, explosions of anger. It will be a community marked by uh, inconsistent interactions, in fact quite uh, subversive interactions behind the scenes. All sorts of conversations going on, all sorts of backbiting and and tearing down and lies being spread and things being, uh, being said and prayed and shared for prayer and all of that kind of stuff. It's all the kind of things you would expect to find in a community that isn't transformed from the heart out. And Paul's saying, if you go that way, it's going to be a mess. But you're free from that. You don't have to go there. You're not obligated to a legalistic, self-focused, own strength kind of righteousness because God in Christ has fulfilled the plans of the new covenant. He's made it possible for us to believe in the promised one. And as we look to him, drawn into fellowship with him by the Spirit so that we can call on God as Abba, we find ourselves loving and it's transformed the whole community. And it's a witness to a whole community. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't let anyone burden you with the yoke of slavery again. Don't use your freedom to go off and sin and do what you want. Of course not. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. Christ has set us free, not as a license to sin, so that we can lovingly serve. That's what Paul wanted the Galatians to be gripped by. We're going to sing our final song and uh, a hymn. Let me pray, and I'm going to pray verse 2. Father, I pray that you would help us to have hearts open and ears to hear what Paul was saying to the church at Galatia. Lord, I pray that you would breathe, oh, breathe your loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit, uh, let us find thy promised rest. Lord, take away the love of sinning. Alpha and Omega B, end of faith as its beginning, set our hearts at liberty. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.